Being Black in America comes with its challenges. However, we understand that enlightenment through education is the oppressor's worst fear. By bridging the gap between academia and the people, our purpose is to equip you with knowledge that breaks down barriers during your journey towards truth and freedom. Welcome to the Black and Highly Dangerous Podcast. Hey, Ty. What's up, Dev? What's going on? Nothing much. Just got back from a long stretch of travel, um, and I'm pretty exhausted. Um, traveling is no joke, especially yeah, when it's not it. first class. I need to get a better job. <laughs> yeah, I can hear it in your voice. Was <laughs> we're doing a lot of uh, a lot of talking this past week? Well, yeah. So I I went. So like not last Thursday, but the Thursday before, probably like almost ten days ago, I went to Miami um, just to party with friends, and I don't think my voice has recovered since then. Um, because then I went straight to to Cambridge and um, you know to visit school, and I was literally talking all day every day, just trying to meet with as many people as I could. So um, yes, my voice is recovering a bit. If I sound as deep as tie. Um, <laughs> No, that's just like that smooth feminine bass. Don't don't hate. Hopefully I can tell the difference between us. <laughs> Hopefully so. I mean, I already uh, kind of have a deep voice anyway, and I'm okay with that. No, I don't think you have a deep voice. You don't, uh, think, so? I don't think so? No, okay. I don't think you have. It might be that southern soulful. It's something about my voice. Yeah, I guess. I guess. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, I want to say... Well, yeah, I've been good, you know. Uh, just same old. Thing. We got midterms coming up this week, so oh, we getting a lot of emails from students and whatnot, getting ready for their assignments and their papers they got to hand in, and then probably in two weeks is spring break, so I'm definitely looking forward to that. Um, but other than that, the same old, same old, just continuous grind. I feel you. But I do want to say thank you to all our listeners for hanging with us for our first month. Um, month one down and now I think we've been doing great you guys have been great for us uh, listening to us supporting us uh, sharing us giving us reviews and comments Uh, we really really appreciate that one month down and forever to go (laughs) I know because we don't we don't plan to stop as long as we have content we'll be here every single week yep yep pushing it out so we just want to you know take the time out to say thank you all for your support Did you um, get a chance to watch the Oscars at all last night, Academy Awards? No, I was I was on a flight, but I did like Google some of the winners and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Saw that Coco. Um, I had a friend who just absolutely loved that movie. She's happy that Coco. I haven't seen it yet. I haven't seen it either, but I heard it's really good. And, and Me too. Um, what else won? Shout out to Kobe Bryant <laughs> out here winning. Academy Awards. Did he have a documentary or something? He had like a short film, yeah, Dear Basketball. Oh, that's uh, what's up. And he won. I was like, you got all these other accolades in basketball. Now you're coming over to the film world and and taking war, taking away awards too. It's kind of crazy. Um, and also shout out to Get Out, Jordan Peele. Oh yes, best I original did see screenplay. That. Yeah, yes, that's awesome. To do that, that's what's up. It was a good movie. 
I, mm-hmm. I did enjoy it. I did enjoy it too. Although I seen some dude on Facebook, a white guy, uh, talking about he didn't want to get out to win because it was offensive to him. <laughs> oh no! Actually, when I went to the movie, like yeah. I, I went to a movie in Boston. It was, mm-hmm. you know, it was some black people, but it was a majority white theater. And like throughout the whole movie, that uh, you know, the main character is just you know experiencing like the, this trauma it was all good but as soon as he like you know flipped the script there were people who walked out like seriously mm-hmm. I was like so we can sit through everything he was going through and about to go through but as soon as he flipped the script and start burning stuff down you're offended please don't mm-hmm. don't yeah, that's so annoying it's like one the movie is meant to display how horrifying racism is um, and and so now you get a little co- uncomfortable because you have to like look at it through the eyes of a of a black person and then you want to run away even when we went to the movie theater I know me, me and Kristen we went and we were um confused at first because it, it was just like a whole bunch of elderly white women in the movie theater with us and we were like are we in the same movie we literally left to look at the screen to check if we were in the right movie that is <laughs> we were so like, funny. this doesn't seem right did they seem offended? Um, they were just sitting there and watching it. I don't think they didn't. Nobody left in our movie theater. We've heard people leaving, you know, in other movies and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but you know, at, you know, there were scenes where we was getting hype, especially at the end, and we were clapping. Yes. Oh especially we saw that police car. Yes. You know what though? My heart. When I first saw the police car, my heart it just it sank because I was like. Oh really really and then it's you know it's TSA or whatever he said I was like mm-hmm. yes lord cause my heart said, cause I was like this is really how it would happen in real yeah. life but yeah. ooh yeah that was an excellent like play on the situation cause it he was. knew what all of us would be thinking like oh man like, no seriously we know how this is about to go down and it was his boy <laughs> so I was like yes applaud that that was awesome yeah um but yeah speaking to get out i think that uh you know one of the things about that movie right was the the informal implicit social cues Mm -hmm. that were happening when he was in the house and trying to talk to other black folk yeah Um, and the things that we are familiar with with certain phrases and the way we speak and he would find it odd when they, they wouldn't reciprocate it or right? do the social norms that we are accustomed to in our culture, the black community. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember that. Like, OK, he was like, like, this is weird. I, you know. Yeah. Even when he went out to, you know, give the give the fit, the pound. And then, yeah. Yeah. And then he yeah, just yeah. put his hand on top of it. <laughs> Uh, but it's funny how those little social cues, you know, will signal to you like, uh, this is something off, you know. Yeah. Uh, like yeah. And it, language we have it can it can cue that like okay we're we're in this together we we see each other we understand each other mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it actually makes me think about today's topic when you say like social cues um and just like that well it's not an unspoken language a, a language uh between black people that uh is sometimes uh legitimized and, and sometimes um viewed as um uh, 
Yeah, as a as a very negative thing, thinking about like African-American English or some people call it African-American vernacular English and mm-hmm. thinking about like this is a shared language we have, but it's often seen as like not legitimate. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And yeah, today we'll be yeah, we'll be talking to Dr. Nicole Holliday, who's a sociolinguist and. We'll talk more about that during the interview, but I'm pretty sure many of you who are listening, especially many of you of color, right? We know within our community, we have this duality as far as how we present ourselves and language, Mm -hmm. right? Like we we talk in black and then we're having like interview speak or professional speak, right? Um, And there's those two different kinds of conversations that we have, the two kind of ways we talk. um, And she actually studies, you know, that kind of language, which they call African, um, African American vernacular English versus standard English. So this is what our conversation will be talking about, um, kind of diving into detail, what it actually is and how it actually impacts us in many different situations. So, so I have a question for you, Ty. If, mm-hmm. if you had to take, cause when I was a teacher, one of the big things that, uh, teachers were starting to do, and some people found it problematic and some people thought like, oh, this is good, is that they were, um, talking or trying to help, uh, young black students to code switch. And that was, you know, trying to say like, okay, you might say this, you know, informally or in African-American English at home, but you know, this is how you say it. Like, you know, if you were like in a business or professional setting, so teaching um, students how to code switch. And I I just want to know, you know, you have all of these degrees, you are a professor. Mm -hmm. Can you code switch? Dude. Can I coach? Yeah. I think I, I think I can. Really? I think I do. Really? Yeah, I think I do. I don't sit and talk uh, how I would when I'm in front of my students and, you know, giving a lecture or presentation uh, when I'm home and I'm with my friends and I'm with the homies. You know, there's definitely definitely a different dialect for sure as far as what I what how I speak when I'm comfortable. So I, I actually want to test your knowledge. Okay. <laughs> so what what I am going to say a few things in standard English and I, I just wanna see if you if you would know how to talk to the homies um at home. So Okay. Okay, pressure's on pressure is on. <laughs> so he doesn't see anything. Hmm. Um, I'm gonna say he don't see nothing. Correct. Give yourself a round yes. of applause. Yeah, um, give myself a round of applause. I finished. <laughs> <laughs> and, and audience, you can test yourself too while you're in the car. Mm-hmm. I finished right. a long ago. You I finished what? a long time ago. Hmm. I'm gonna say um, I've been finished. Yeah, kind of. It's more like I've been finished. I've been finished that, you know. I've been finished, yeah. That's what I said. I thought she said I finished. No, I said I've been finished. Okay, I said I've okay. Been finished. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. <laughs> I, said, I said I've been finished. Um, She is about to leave the store. Mm, she's about to leave the store. <sighs> this can go a couple ways. Okay. Um... She about to leave the store. She's about to leave the store. I don't know. All I can think of is like, she ready to go? Nah, nah. Oh, There's an important word that you missed. She finna leave the store. Oh, she finna. Okay. I think that is also a part of regional dialect. That's true. That might be, that might be Southern. <laughs> I, feel like more of a, I feel like that's more of a Southern. Okay. Uh, like here in New York, New Jersey, you know. 
<laughs> she she about to go. Yeah. She well, you know what? That is leave. that's something we'll probably get into in an interview, like whether there are like differences by region. Mm-hmm. Um, let me see another one. Um, I am usually tired when I get home. Oh uh, man, again, I think this could be regional. Um, usually, I just, people just be like, you know, I'm beat. You know. Uh, man. Yeah, that's definitely <laughs> regional. <laughs> what and you it's. If we're talking about African American vernacular English, it's I be tired. I be tired. Okay, yeah, I, I be tired, too. man. I be tired. Yeah, yeah. Again, up here, right. I'm beat. Yeah. I'll give you one more. Um, right. Please give it to me. <sighs> please give it to me. Like an item. Um, yeah, like an item. Please give it to me. Yeah. Oh mm. no. Uh. Cause the please is throwing me off. So I'm like, okay, How do you say this? okay. Well, then just say, give it to me, give it to me, an item. Mm-hmm. Bring, give it to me. I, I don't know. I'll just say, bring it here. Uh, you would really say, bring it here. And I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. This is the pressure, man. I don't know what I would say. It's like I gotta think about it instead of just saying it. What you is be it? Like, what is it? Get, give me that. Or okay. give it here. Give it here. Give me that. Give it. Give it here. Yeah. I said bring it here. I think I was close. No, no. All right, all right. I got a couple. I got a couple for you then. I got a couple oh, for okay. You. I mean, I'm all I'm right. a professional at this. All right. All right. <clears throat> he keeps on working. He be working. Mm, I could give you that one, but the one they what have here it? is he steady working. Okay, he's that. Okay, no, yeah, but he be working. <laughs> I think this is the one you, yeah, this is the one where he frequently works on Tuesdays. Oh, he be working on Tuesdays? Yeah, yeah, that's the one that you were, that you were looking for. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, let me see, I think I have one more. Mm, I guess, no, this is, these are easy, um, but I guess I'll say it anyway. Um, no, you said this one. Okay, he didn't go there. He ain't go there? Yep, correct. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. I told you. I'm a professional at this. There's actually, there's this app called Blebrity that Jesse Williams and his um, estranged wife um, mm-hmm. created. And they actually have a category. It's not Ave, but it's really funny. And it kind of takes you back to like, Something that's very black, uh, but they have this thing called like your mama phrases and it's like so funny. It's a fun game to like play with your friends because, you know, they just have things that are like translated from like, you know, a very particular, I guess, Americanized way of like saying some, you know, just some, some phrases that, uh, your mama would say. So Bleberty is B-L-E-B-R-I-T-Y and it's a fun game. You can download it. Check that out. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of like heads up. Have you ever played that game heads up on your cell phone? Mm -hmm. So it's like the black version of heads up and they have like some, you know, they have like popular phrases, mama phrases, movies. Um, you know, but this game—that's what it re- reminded me of playing Bill Abadie. Yeah, I'm gonna definitely, definitely check that out. 
Yeah. Definitely check that out. Okay. I think we did a fairly good job. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Of the code switching. (laughs) (laughs) And like I said, to me, what really stood out was the regional differences. I'm like. Actually, yeah. I don't think I've ever really said he fit. Some some people be like fixing to a finna. Sefa. That's another one. Sefa. Yeah, like except for Sefa. Oh, oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, that's that southern southern (laughs) draw. Man. Oh, that's too funny. Uh, I was just talking to my brother uh, yesterday, you know, because he's from up here, up northeast, but he living in Georgia now in Atlanta. And he said people be getting on him. Down there, because they say he, he speaks too proper. That is so funny. <laughs> or like he pronunciates. They say he pre- actually they say he pronunciates all his words. And so he was laughing about that because he's like up here. We feel like we don't. Actually, a lot of people, you know, that come to me and my family. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mumble a lot. They feel like we mumble. Me and my brothers. Seriously? But, yeah. Nah. I feel, I feel like North. Like, yeah. The pronunciation and enunciate like are very like. You know, it'd be like, okay, say those words, say them <laughs> all the way. Uh, that's funny. Um, so anyway, I, I mean, we're going to get into this with, with Dr. Nicole Holiday uh, and get a little bit more to details about what this means, what the differences are, the impacts uh, of it. So I hope you, you know, all get ready to enjoy this, this conversation and this interview was we enjoyed it. One of our favorite interviews thus far, for sure. Yes. Um, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And a lot of a lot of good takeaway stuff. Um, so other than that, you ready to to get into it, Dad? I'm ready. All right. So we'll we'll holler at y'all later. <laughs> See what I did there? Holler at y'all later. Ah, uh, stop. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Today, we welcome Dr. Nicole Holliday. She is an assistant professor of linguistics and cognitive science at Pomona College. Her work focuses on how individuals interact with language to conceptualize and construct self and others. For instance, she wants to understand how individuals use features of language to either perform their ethnic identity or make ethnicity judgments while listening to others. She is also interested in the ways in which political figures may alter their patterns of language to perform different types of identities in order to appeal to different constituencies. The goal for today's interview is to explore the relationship between African-American English or African-American vernacular English English, black identity, class identity, and prejudice within and outside of the black community. We welcome Dr. Nicole Holliday. Hey, good. Nice to be with you all. Yay. Happy nice, to have nice you. To have you. Welcome. Um, so I guess before we get into, you know, this deeper conversation about linguistics, etc., I guess kind of tell us a little bit about yourself and I guess your journey towards becoming um, a linguist. Yeah, I was the kind of kid that was good at school, um, but not like a math prodigy or like really good at anything in particular. I was just generally good at school um, until I got to like eighth grade and I took I took Spanish and I was obsessed with it. I was like, oh, Spanish, this is the thing I'm really good at. Um, so then I went to college and I was like just going to study some languages, basically. So I was double majoring in Spanish and Arabic and uh 
like my friend's dad said, oh, you should take intro to linguistics. Like, you know, he had a master's degree in linguistics and he said he thought he'd re- that I would really like it. And I actually got to day one of intro to linguistics. And I was like, this is the thing I've been looking for my whole life. Like, this is the thing that I'm good at. Um, I thought it was just learning languages, but it wasn't that. I was actually really interested in the structure and thinking of language as a scientific discipline. But, you know, it's not like we teach linguistics in high school. So I, it sort of stumbled into it. And when you talk to people that, you know, ended up being professional linguists, they pretty much all have that story. Like they just happened to take a class at some point and realize that there was a thing that they could do with all these skills that they didn't realize they had. So, so what exactly, um, I guess, is the field or study of linguistics and how is it different? Um, you, you kind of mentioned that, uh, like, a, like structure. So how is it like different from like maybe speech language pathology, um, like studying foreign language or like other forms of like or other fields of communication? Yeah, it's such a good question. And I'm actually teaching introduction to linguistics this semester. And the first day of class, I walked in, I was like, do y'all know what you signed up for? Like, what is linguistics? Does anybody know why we're here? Um, Because the students don't know either. Um, Basically, I like to explain it like this. If you think about medicine as like an applied discipline, right? So doctors treat people. um, But the underlying theory of it is like biology, that's kind of how linguistics is to other applied disciplines. So the applied disciplines might be things like speech pathology, things like translation, things like teaching English as a second language. But we do all of the research that underlies the assumptions that people that use language as praxis are, are sort of relying on. Uh, okay, so you're kind of that foundational scientific base and then you give it to the everybody else and they practice it in different forms. Yeah, so we we are very interested in how the patterns of language work across the world, right? So if there are universals in how humans use language, what are they? Um, what's theoretically possible in the way that human language can structure itself, right? Like not every possible structure of a language occurs, right? Like not every sound that a human body can make occurs in a language, right? So we are interested in sort of how these things pattern across the world, but sort of more specifically in in my subdiscipline, I'm interested in how the science of language interacts with sociology. So all of the things, because language is fundamentally social, right? We use it to Mm -hmm. do communication things. Um, how do all of the things that we know about language kind of influence the way that we are in society and the assumptions that we make about other people? So that's essentially what sociolinguistics is. Am I correct? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So moving forward, I guess, um, you know, one of the cool things we wanted to talk to you about, too, and this comes up from your research and, and looking at a couple of the articles that you sent my way, um, you know, even before reading this kind of stuff, I was always, you know, intrigued, right? Just being a black male and, you know, things that we talk about amongst friends within the community, right? Things of like code switching um, in a lot of different ways. Um, and I see that, you know, within the field, it's kind of known as African-American English or standard English and these, and these kind of differences between the two. So you can just tell us a little bit more about that and how linguists look at that. 
Yeah. I mean, we fundamentally think of ourselves as doing work that we would call descriptive as opposed to prescriptive. So, you know, sometimes if I'm out in the world and I tell people that I'm a linguist, they're like, oh my God, you must be judging my grammar. And I, my answer is actually, I'm the person least likely to judge your grammar in the world. Um, because we're not, we're not here to say the way that things should be. We're just interested in, in what's going on, right? Sort of descriptively. So when we talk about this idea of like standard English or there's a lot of ways to call it, right? People call it like mainstream or general American or like whatever this thing is. Um, it's kind of an abstraction. Like there's no, you can't point to a person and be like, they speak the most prestigious quote unquote standard version, right? We're always sort of approximating these things. The same is true for what we would call African-American English. You might hear it called African-American vernacular English or African-American language. We have a lot of labels. And of course, the labels all kind of have a political uh, bent to them, too. It's like about what your stance is towards this thing. Mm. Um, but African-American English is kind of fundamentally about the way that black people in America talk. And of course, there's incredible variation within that, right? Like someone, a black person from Detroit does not sound the same as a black person from Atlanta. Um, and we know that too, but it's sort of a cover term for sort of this myriad of ways that black people in America um, talk in the community. Yeah, I was actually thinking about that um, uh, and thinking about like African-American. Well, before I kind of like read like some of your papers or, you know, read some things in preparation for this interview, you know, I had only heard of like African-American vernacular English. And then I saw like the African-American English and I was like, OK, are there differences? But in in thinking about like potentially the differences between like African-American English and African-American vernacular English, one of the things I was thinking about is how you know, people from any given region put a flavor on that and how the interaction or the intersection between like maybe an accent and the use of non-standard English actually come together to create um, identity, but also potentially like stereotypes about, you know, any given person. Yeah, there's definitely some of that. <laughs> um you, for vernacular, the word vernacular means something kind of particular to a linguist. And it's not, um, it does, it's not negative for us. Um, it means just a natural way of speaking. So, you know, everybody, uh, all speakers have different registers, right? They can be more formal or less formal. The vernacular is, you could just think, but it's like the way that people talk when they're not sort of being monitored, um, or in a really high stress situation, something like that. Um, so of course, like, you know, white speakers have a vernacular too. And linguists are almost always trying to capture the way that people really talk. Because if you get people in a really high stress situation, they're all going to try to sound the same. They're going to approximate this thing that is standard English because that's what they think of, or that's what they've been taught is correct, quote unquote. But nobody talks like that in their everyday life. <laughs> so we're interested in the way that people actually talk. And so I think the difference between this label of African-American English versus African-American vernacular English is when we talk about African-American English, we have broadened the label to allow for there to be a formal version of that too, which is why I sort of prefer that, prefer that term. Although there are times where maybe you really want to be talking about the most informal version. And so then it might be more specific for your purposes to talk about the vernacular. Thanks. Okay. Is, is African-American English the same as Ebonics? Yes, actually. 
Um, okay. you know, the, where the word Ebonics comes from, um, it's from the sixties, seventies. Um, and it was Ebony plus phonics, which is mm. actually really cool. Um, <laughs> the reason that we don't, you know, linguists don't use Ebonics as a technical term is because it has a really negative connotation. Mm. Um, so this, this negative connotation started to come up in the late eighties and early nineties and really came to a head in uh, 1995 with what we call the Oakland Ebonics controversy. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you're familiar with this, but, um, in Oakland in, uh, around San Francisco in 1995, their school board was realizing that the black students were falling behind, uh, in elementary school as particularly in reading. And so they did some investigation as to what was going on. And what they found was maybe the students weren't being taught in a language that made sense to them. So we're talking about kindergartners and first graders. They don't really read. And if there's a really big disconnect between the way the teachers sound and the way the teachers are trying to teach them to read and the way that everybody that they interact with in the community sounds, they're going to struggle more, right? The curriculum was designed for white kids for that spoke a particular way. And that was the assumption. So what the Oakland school board said was we can create a curriculum that takes into account the way that a lot of our black students speak in their communities. And in this way, we can better serve them in the school system. They were right to do this. What they proposed was in, was scientifically um, accurate, according to linguists and also education scholars, right? Teach kids in the language that they speak. Mm. But a lot of people misunderstood what their proposal was. They thought that they were saying, we're just only going to teach abonics in school and we're going to teach it to white kids. And it got really out of hand in the media. And so you had Bill Cosby and Jesse Jackson and everybody and their brother coming out and writing pieces coming on TV and just saying like, this is dumbing down black kids. This is a plot against our community. This is a travesty. And in reality, what they were trying to do was improve the school performance of the black kids doing something that was linguistically sound. But because the public has such strong ideologies about what good language is, that kind of didn't get off the ground. Now, since then, other places, other people have tried a similar approach to um, teaching reading to black students who might speak AE in their community or in their home. And it's been very successful, Um, but it had to be reframed as this is a program to get black students to master academic English. So you couldn't say abonics. You couldn't say it was about African-American English. You couldn't say it was about race, even though it was clearly about race. Mm. It had to be framed to be more palatable to avoid triggering all of these kind of messed up ideologies that people have about what language is supposed to be like. Mm. Mm, that's interesting. No, I didn't know that story. And I'm glad you yeah. shared that with us. I didn't either. That definitely so that's why we don't, that's why we don't say abonics is because it's uh, it's got that connotation of all of that kind of bad times mm. in the 90s. I didn't mm. know that. And I, I was actually a teacher in the late 2000s. And it's interesting because it, I guess, in like a movement toward like building cultural competency in teachers, there actually started to be like more of a push to have like a curriculum and language that was like culturally relevant to students and teaching them to mm-hmm. Code switch. Um, there was actually um, 
a Jeopardy game um, for students. Like there's a video, you can probably find it on YouTube where there's like a Jeopardy game where students kind of are expected to like translate back and forth between like, I guess, African-American English and like the standard English just so that they can, I guess, understand like the differences between the two. But it's, it's interesting how that changed, but how you have to actually code it or or frame it in a different way and actually for it to be palatable to um, outsiders. <laughs> Yeah. And isn't that, isn't that messed up? And also, you know, my critique of that, I mean, I I get what they're trying to do. And I think that it is probably pedagogically sound, but if you're not um, asking that of white students too, is it really fair? Right. Like who has to do the additional work to be able to exist in an academic space? We ask so much of black kids um, to assimilate, to speak a certain way, to be a certain way, in the classroom, which is that culture is determined by, you know, the white middle class. And so that's my like primary critique at the same time. Like I don't teach primary school. Um, and it's really, really hard. So, um, I think definitely now in modern times, teachers are really trying to be more aware of what, what linguistic skills and what linguistic background the students are bringing to the classroom, but they're still, you know, under-resourced, like, we don't teach, we don't treat teachers half as well as we should, obviously. Um, so it's a hard problem. When, um, you know, before moving forward in this conversation a little bit, I kind of want to just, you know, as, a, as an academic on one end, I'm curious to know, right. This kind of fascinates me of even how you talked about it earlier. Um, you know, that you want to, one, you want to catch people speaking kind of in some in some cases in their most comfortable and formal manners, like the most natural way of speaking. Um, so my one first part of that question is, you know, how do you capture that, um, that kind of speaking? Because I think it, it can be tough. I mean, maybe if you're not in like the home of the person or if they're not like hanging out with friends and kind of like laid back and just speaking what they would not, how they would naturally speak. And then two, um, what kind of things or variables do you look at scientifically to differentiate between, you know, African American English and maybe standard English and what, what are some differences between the two? Yeah, actually in your question, you mentioned two of the ways that we get people speaking sort of more naturalistically. Sometimes we come to their home. Okay. (laughs) Um, and you know, the idea is like, they're more comfortable at their home than if they're, we bring them into a lab or something on the university campus. Like that's weird for most people. Um, another thing that we do is we record them talking to people that they already know. So if you are talking to your, if we bring you in with your friends or we record you and your friends at your house, it's pretty weird for you to be kind of putting on some kind of formal thing. Mm -hmm. Um, even -hmm. if you are being recorded, because these are people that you talk to all the time. So they'd kind of call you out for being weird or being fake. Um, we also, uh, we try to ask questions sometimes that, make it hard to be formal. So sometimes we will have people like recite a nursery rhyme. Think about that. Like yeah. how hard would it be to like say Humpty Dumpty in like your most formal voice? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's not, right? Yeah. Things that we learn to do as children, we tend to not talk about as formally. Um, a very high emotion type of, uh, of conversations also tend, people can't, um, they have to turn off their monitor their, their sort of thing that's telling them they have to be formal if they get really excited about a story. (laughs) So we just ask things to, to kind of like bring them out of the interview environment to bring them kind of into where they're really focusing on the content and less about the form. Um, so that's, that's one way that we do it. Um, 
So yeah, when you're looking at language, there are thousands of variables that you could be interested in. Um, with African-American English, a lot of the research has been on the ways that what we would call the morphology and the syntax differ from um, standard English. So this has to do with basically sentence structure and, and how um, the component parts of sentences are sort of put together. Okay. So um, in African-American English, there is a thing called zero copula, which is optional. So not that you use it 100% of the time, but if you think about um, like uh, Jay-Z and Kanye, like that, that shit cray, uh -huh. um, you don't have to say <laughs> that shit is cray, <laughs> right? You don't need, you don't need the verb is. <laughs> um, and so that is an example of zero copula. Now, a standard English speaker might say, well, that sentence is wrong because it doesn't have a verb. It does have a verb. It's just not overtly expressed. Mm. And by the way, many of the world's languages use zero copula. Arabic is a language that is universally zero copula. Everybody that speaks Arabic in the world is getting getting by fine without the word without saying is and am and are yeah. <laughs> in sentences like that. So it's not um, the argument that people will make for why these things are kind of not good uh, aren't rooted in any sort of scientific fact. And if you know more about how languages work across the world, you know that it isn't necessarily um, a good or bad thing to have an overt expression of the, the verb um, in every sentence. It's just a piece of variation. And we attach social meaning to it because of all of this other stuff, right? Because of classism, racism, historical facts. But the structure itself isn't good or bad. No, I was about to say that's um, interesting. One oh, thing, uh, kind of thinking about what you were saying uh, about African American English and like uh, zero copula and like different languages across the world. I guess one thing I was interested um, there seemed African American English, in in my view or my opinion, seems to be viewed from like a more like a deficit. Uh, uh, a deficit perspective like you are lacking something that you should have but when I think about like so my black friends from like the Caribbean or from Africa who speak like pigeons and creoles that's all I've noticed not necessarily from them but you know sometimes from them sometimes from like people outside of the black community those pigeons and creoles are seen as a cultural asset instead of like a cultural deficit do you have like any thoughts on that on like why that might be the case yeah I definitely agree with you that um it's framed as a deficit what's interesting about that is what we were talking about earlier with the code switching so most people that speak African-American English also have some command of standard English and maybe really good command of standard English so in this way they are they speak two dialects but somehow the ideal here is to only speak one but that's not true across the world, right? Like most people in the world speak more than one language. So this American idea that being monolingual, only speaking one language is a good thing is really unusual across the world. So that's part of, I think, to answer your question about why people from other places don't feel that way. It's natural to be multilingual true, in true. most of the rest of the world. Um, Americans view it 
it's kind of, I would say almost like arrogance to be like, no, I don't have to speak another language because I'm American and, you know, I'm going to sort of demand that everybody speaks English to me. Um, I think that's part of that. The other thing is if you look at Haiti or Jamaica, places where people speak Creole languages, they are the numerical majority, right? So most people in Haiti speak Haitian Creole, even if the language is not necessarily seen as prestigious in a lot of, um, a lot of different domains, right? Like in school and things like that. Still, it's the language of the community. And when people move to the United States, they want to keep a connection to their community. So I think among expatriates, you do see more linguistic pride. But what happened with African-American English is we have always been a minority. Mm -hmm. Um, And we did not come to this country speaking English. The way that African-American English developed Um, There's a few sort of competing hypotheses here, but I'm going to try to be (laughs) neutral. Um, The way that it developed was um, when the uh, colonizers kidnapped the enslaved people um, and brought them to the south of the what's now the United States, they separated people who spoke the same language in order to decrease the risk of a rebellion. So they were intentionally putting together groups of people who did not have a language in common. What happens when you do that? Um, humans are good at language. And so they figure out a way to be able to communicate with each other. That's how you get Creole languages actually. Um, but at the same time, they were, uh, also constantly in contact with the slave owners, as well as the poor whites that were here, the indentured servants who did speak English. Um, although a lot of different varieties of English, cause they were coming from all over the UK. You think about the Irish and stuff like that. So the idea is that the enslaved people, created sort of a version of English from the English input that they had, but also from the input of all of the West African languages that were being spoken on those plantations. And this language evolved over time um, to be more more like English, but still retains um, some of the features that it developed at, you know, at its inception. Mm-hmm. Kind of going along those lines, um, I'm curious to know, right, uh, I guess, of course, when we're talking about we've been talking about a AAE and, and standard English, but now I'm kind of looking at the going along the lines with Daphne was talking about the kind of within group differences. Right. Um, I know you mentioned region earlier, um, but what about things like class or socioeconomic status? Right. Do middle class blacks um, speak more standard English or do they still speak African-American English as well? Is, is it attributed or attached to uh, class in any way? Yeah. Classes really big. Class is really big for linguistic variation for everybody in the whole world. Okay. Um, even think about it, even for white speakers, right? There's a lot of stigma to sounding poor and white or quote unquote, you know, the slur that people use like white trash. That is a way of sounding mm-hmm. too. Right. Um, so you get the same sort of thing. Um, it's interesting with African-American English because you know, the black middle class, there's always been a black middle class, but not in the numbers that there are now for a long time, right? Not until the end of redlining, not until the civil rights movement, did you have a lot of people that were um, black and wealthy or even black and, and middle class. And so a lot of us are still very connected to our working class roots, right? Our parents, our grandparents, our families, um, so we feel maybe a little bit differently about class than somebody who's had money for eight generations or something like that. Um, there's a, I think there's a lot of conflict on the part of a lot of middle-class black speakers, just from my research. Um, 
people feel like they want to speak African-American English in solidarity with the community or to fit in or as a political statement. Um, at the same time, all the rest of the social pressure, particularly if you have pursued higher education, tells you that you should speak standard English all the time. And so there becomes sort of this tension between, okay, I'm black and I want to express solidarity with other black people, but I'm also middle class and I need to perform my class status. So in this way, you get into a conflict where your class says to do one thing and maybe your race says to do another thing. Mm -hmm. And this is super complicated for every individual person mm -hmm. because there's also other stuff going on, right? There's gender. Um, women uh, in general feel more pressure to speak the quote unquote more standard or more proper version. Um, and that's true sort of across languages uh, for a lot of reasons. So, you know, what any individual person feels as linguistic pressure is, is kind of, you know, you have to do a deeper dive into that. But there's definitely differences by class within the field of linguistics. Um, in the 60s and 70s, when we were first starting to do this research, there was a lot of fascination with working class black people, particularly in cities like New York, Philadelphia, Detroit, um, because they were perceived as speaking the sort of most authentic African-American English. But I think that as time has gone on, we've gotten more studies and we've got more black people doing linguistic research. It's uh, able to it's been we've been able to expand it to say, like, no, I mean, the studies, most of the studies are on young, working class, urban men. Um, but my grandmother also speaks African-American English. Like, where are the studies on my grandma? Mm. Right. So we've started to do more to look at um, at older people, more at women and LGBT black people. Like we're sort of expanding our definition of what it means uh, to speak African-American English. I actually am writing a book right now okay. um, called Variation Within African-American English oh, nice. that sort of deals with exactly these topics because we're, we're sort of at an exciting moment to broaden our definition of what it, what it is to be a speaker of this variety. Yeah. Um, that's really interesting that you say that. And also kind of thinking about the pressure. Um, I know for me as someone, I'm Southern African-American, uh, I come from a working class or lower class, um, in income in terms of household income. And it's also like a question of like authenticity. Like I've asked myself, like, what does it mean to be the authentic Daphne in a space where, you know, I, I go to an Ivy League PhD program? Like, what does it mean to be authentic? And, you know, there's kind of a, like a pressure to be authentic as well as like have solidarity, but as well as, you know, speak a certain type of, you know, English in the classroom. Mm -hmm. One thing that I was interested, um, I noticed that you also have some uh, research or at least uh, research interest in examining um, the way politicians um, used language to, I guess, connect with like constituents. Um, have you I mean, do you um, ha have any findings um, related to that or um, have any like insights about like any particular figures and how they've used uh, language to to, um, I guess, perform for certain types of constituents. Yeah, I, this is definitely one of my interests. Um, I always joke that like, if I wasn't going to be a professor, I was just going to go like market myself to politicians and be like, let me explain to you how you need to talk to black people because it's a problem, <laughs> right? <laughs> like as a linguist, I can tell you what you need to do. Um, so, uh, I am very interested in, I have always been interested in what's going on with Obama. 
Um, and now as a private citizen, I'm still just like absolutely fascinated on what happens with his language. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about what my specific research is. So when you asked about variables, I told you about the example of zero copula. I actually don't do that kind of research. Um, my dissertation work was on young men with one black parent and one white parent. And, um, specifically I was interested at first in, uh, recording them talking to black friends and talking to white friends because I was looking for basically code switching based on who they were talking to. Um, and the variables that I was interested in weren't things like their grammar, but rather their patterns of intonation. So like where their voice goes up and where it goes down like this. Right. Um, and there are certain patterns that are more characteristic of some communities than others. Um, what I found in that study was the more so these are people who are kind of biracial. Right. But they aligned themselves differently. So some of them were like, no, I pretty much identify as black. I go to an HBCU. Um, all my friends are black. I grew up in a black community. Like, yes, I'm mixed, but really I'm black. And some of them were like, no, I'm definitely biracial. Like, I don't really feel like I identify as black. And so there was this continuum of all the people that I studied. And, um, what I found was the ones that they said that they personally aligned themselves more as black were doing an intonational pattern that looked more like African-American English. So that gave me a place to start in looking at the politicians. Um, okay. If they're doing this particular pattern in a, in a particular situation more than in another situation, are they trying to do something to align themselves more as black or with the black community, like the participants in my study? Um, that's why I'm so interested in Obama mm -hmm. because he's, he's got this like biracial thing, but also the politician thing. And I think, um, you know, he, especially if you think back to 2008 was very appealing to white audiences and black audiences, but people commented on how different he sounded when he talks to different audiences mm -hmm. and it's not in the words, right? It's in his tone of voice. Yep. Um, so that's, you know, I still have a lot of ongoing research to kind of figure out what's going on with him in that. Um, I'm also interested, my big research question is like, what does it mean to sound black? So from the point of the research I was just telling you about, like if you're trying to perform something, blackness because it's advantageous for you politically or because it's a part of your identity that you'd like to show off in a situation. What is it that you're doing? The flip side of that is who gets evaluated as sounding black. So if you hear somebody behind you, you don't see them and you go, that's a black guy. What did you hear? Like, I'm interested in the physical characteristics that your ear and your mind attuned to, to make that judgment. Um, so it's sort of pieces of the same puzzle of like, what does it mean to sound black? Mm, that's really interesting. So I guess what, when it comes to intonation specifically, you know, and I've seen you kind of related it to, I guess, some of the more pressing social issues, definitely politically. Um, but how is this important in other areas of our social environment to looking at social yeah. uh, intonation? Yeah. Um, so I have a project right now. Um, I'm looking at a big corpus of data, data that was collected um, in the 60s and 70s and then data that was collected in 2016 uh, in Washington, D.C. with a, a bunch of speakers. And uh, they're all black speakers, but I'm interested in the way that they're asking questions. So the tone of their voice when they ask questions um, in you know standard English or whatever we want to call it, uh, we expect that 
um, what we call like open-ended questions will rise at the end. So I'll say like, what did you have for lunch? And it'll go up. Right. Um, the idea is that I don't think that that actually happens in the same way uh, or to the same extent for African-American English speakers. So it might sound something like, what did you have for lunch? Like it might fall Mm. instead of rise at the end of the phrase. And this has, the reason that this is interesting is what happens when you ask a question and you don't do it with the tone that people were expecting, right? First of all, they might not realize you're asking a question. So it opens the door for potential miscommunication. But secondly, I think that um, whenever people are not doing the pattern, that is the standard pattern, it has the, uh, the opportunity that it would be evaluated negatively. So I suspect that this might have something to do with why black speakers are seen as less polite or more aggressive or more hostile mm. or less deferential. The way that the language asks questions might just be different. Um, but we don't really know that yet. Um, and of course, like if that's the case, there are implications even in the educational system. What happens to kids who aren't asking questions the way the teacher expects them mm. to, right? Do they get read as insubordinate? Um, I would bet money that Probably. happens. But I'd like I would like to know sort of specifically more what's going on. So that's an ongoing project that I have right now. And, and that can probably be um, related to interactions with police and stuff as well, right? Absolutely. So I wrote just a little quick piece um, in 2015 with a couple of other linguists, um, Rachel Burdine and Joseph Tyler, um, for this linguistics blog called Language Log. Um, you guys can link to it, I guess, if, if you find it. But it was about Sandra Bland. Um, and we did a brief analysis of the Sandra Bland traffic stop. And what we found was that her patterns of intonation were very different than the officer who stopped her. And to the point where it basically looked like he was not understanding the level of agitation that she was at. He was assuming that she was more angry or more hostile than she was because if he was using the patterns of intonation that she was using at the beginning, he would have been hostile. So for him, where she started out is the most hostile that he can sound, Hmm. but that's just how she sounds. Okay. So he, the idea is like maybe he attributed additional um, insubordination or hostility to her because he didn't really understand, like understand what she was saying and the way she was mm-hmm. saying it. Mm-hmm. I've, I've actually experienced something like that. It was at the airport and, you know, kind of like everyone, I was slightly irritated about like a delayed flight. And, you know, I would, I said something, but I, I thought I said it in a very regular tone. And, you know, the, the, the desk agent, she was like, don't like, don't yell at me. And I'm like, I actually wasn't yelling, but it's it's so weird how uh, language or even the tone, like intonation, um, can be perceived by people from from different backgrounds, and how it can potentially result in micro or macro aggressions that you know cause trauma and harm to like people who who may had no like ill intentions related to their questions or their comments. Yeah, I absolutely think that's going on, which is why like, I'm pretty excited about this, this line of research that I'm doing now. I'm also um, planning, I'm in the beginning stages of a study where I look at high school girls with different rates of school discipline, so um, suspensions and expulsion. 
and do a lot of measurements about their baseline patterns of intonation. Because again, I suspect that there might be something going on with the girls who have higher rates of discipline. Um, you know, teachers may be attributing uh, insubordination to them because of how they sound mm -hmm. right? um, or additional insubordination to them because of how they sound. And this is particularly an issue for girls because when girls are suspended, it's often things like attitude and insubordination. Um, you know, people attribute all of these, these, you know, their negative stereotypes of black women um, to girls. And I think there's definitely a language piece going on too. So I'm, I'm very interested to see sort of how that turns out. I was actually about to say um, kind of what you were saying. I was uh, there was some research I saw um, and it was like a lot of, you know, for black uh, girls and boys, but a lot of like the disciplinary infractions are around these subjective, um, subjective things of like how people may perceive uh, behavior. So like you said, insubordination or um, just things that aren't so cut and dry and can be like related to like implicit biases or or stereotypes that people might have about you know certain aspects or characteristics of you know the way the person is communicating so that that sounds like really interesting research and I look forward to hearing more about that yeah I have so many I mean it's interesting to be like a younger younger newer faculty member because I'm like I'm gonna do this and this and this <laughs> but I you know uh, research takes a while so <laughs> in a couple of years I'll get back at you with that <laughs> I, I understand the process. I understand. <laughs> so before we get into our next couple of questions to, to end this, I, I, I'm just rest. I'm trying I'm thinking through this as you've been talking um, and kind of when we're, when we're discussing, you know, uh, things like intonation or discussing African-American English and things that we've already talked about, right? This kind of usually negative social stigma to different styles of speech. And on one end, and me and Daphne, we were talking about this before the interview and we were kind of saying like how us, how we like to are in a form of some kind of resistance, right? How we're like, you know what? We're not going to always try to put on in certain social spaces that we're supposed to put on or code switch. And we're going to kind of speak our natural way more often um, and feel comfortable with that because sometimes it's just a little too hard to always try to put on and be conscious of how you're speaking. But then I also think that there is a privilege to that, too, because of the situations we're in. Um, because, you know, Daphne and I, all of us in this conversation, right, we have probably multiple degrees behind our name. And so even if we did choose to speak in a more relaxed fashion, um, we still have the credentials where people wouldn't question things like our intellect or intelligence levels, et cetera. Um, and so it's just like, how do we go about, you know, as as a community, you know, white or black, right, when we hear certain variations of speech to one, not really put a negative stigma towards it, right? Um, and be more accepting of it and not really attribute it to things like intellect. Because um, I think that's even like, um, I remember in an interview you had, right? You talked about uh, Rachel Jantel and, and the Trayvon Martin case. And I think, you know, both sides, white and black people were talking about how she spoke on the stand. And many people say that's what was used against her, right? Of kind of um, discrediting her testimony in some ways because of her, her speech pattern. So I'm just trying to practically think about like us as people, how can we um, like practice ways to not let that, that kind of those speech patterns influence, right? As, as far as putting uh, certain kind of attributes on people because they speak differently. Yeah. 
This is really challenging because language ideologies are deeply, deeply mm-hmm. held. And we, we learn them from the time that we're children. Um, and people have very strong feelings about them. Um, the thing with the Rachel Jantel uh, testimony in the George Zimmerman trial, um, there's a really great paper in the, it's like the top linguistics journal. It's called Language. It's by Rick and King. It came out at the end of 2016, where they did a really thorough analysis of what was going on and basically did find that, you know, she was discredited. Her testimony was discredited at every turn. Um, people misunderstood her, willfully misunderstood her when she was using features of African-American English. Um, and she was just totally, you know, dragged through the mud in the media. It was, it was horrible. Um, so I definitely recommend checking out that paper because it's an example par excellence of the kind of thing that you're talking about. Um, last semester I, uh, I taught in this program called the inside out prison exchange oh, yeah, heard that. and the way that it works. Yeah. The way that it works is, uh, we took, I teach at Pomona. I took, um, 12 students from Pomona and the Claremont colleges to a local, uh, state prison. And, uh, we just held the class inside. So it's not, it's not community service. It's not tutoring. It's not, we're going to go save these people. It's none of that. We're just doing class like we would normally do, but we're doing it where we're bringing in folks that are incarcerated that might not otherwise, you know, be part of these conversations. And the class that I taught was linguistic discrimination. And, um, the, the, uh, Claremont students, the Pomona students throughout the entire semester were really shocked by the ideologies that a lot of the incarcerated students had about language, because a lot of the incarcerated students were speakers of African-American English. Um, and a lot of the, the students from the college were not right. Unsurprisingly. Um, and the incarcerated students would make comments throughout the whole semester, like, no, but that's just the right way to talk. Like we all have to learn the right way to talk. And these privileged college kids were like, no, there's linguistic variation. It's beautiful. And we had to really, as a class work Mm -hmm. through this divide about the ideologies that they had. And one of the things that was explained to the, the outside students, the Pomona students was, listen, this is an environment for these guys that are incarcerated where they got the privilege to be in our classroom because they speak standard English. Mm. Right. Like even having the opportunity to take a class in prison is something that you don't get access to unless you are playing the, by yeah. the rules of the white supremacist society. So, um, of course people in that situation might be very invested in the idea of standard, standard English or standard language because it benefits them to a certain extent, right? They are getting, um, more advantages or, you know, more opportunities in the social situation that they're in because they are able to code switch or because they're able to use standard English. So when you're asking folks in that type of situation, Nah, like just talk however you want. Like African-American English is equally valid. You're really asking them to give something up, to risk something. Kind of what you were saying, like, oh, we have the privilege to do this because we have degrees and, you know, we got receipts and whatever. Um, you can't just ask the average person to, to do that, right? It's a big, big risk. And so, you know, how do we go about changing this? We need to actually start with children, and not allow them just as we teach them that uh, hopefully we teach them that like, you know, we don't discriminate against people because of their race or their gender or they're from any of that kind of stuff. We have explicit messages about yeah. that, you know, that people receive as children. 
but still people think it's okay to make fun of people that sound different. I'll tell you this, like my students who are so, you know, it's a liberal campus. We're in Southern California. So well, <laughs> will actually, you know, and they're linguists will still mock people that sound like quote unquote rednecks or like from the South. They think it's okay to mock a Southern mm. accent and it's classist. Um, but that, that is so often a punchline in our society. Oh, Baba, you know, the redneck that sounds like this, that, and whatever, that people think it's okay. It's not okay. It's classism. Um, so how do we change that? We need to call people out on the implications of their language ideologies, like the damage that that actually does to real people. Mm, I agree yeah. as a Southerner. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm, here, thank I'm here for you too. Everybody. But no, also thinking about that. So thinking about how to, um, I guess, change mindsets around uh, language and linguistics. Um, I also noticed that just in academia in general, we need people to ask certain types of questions so that we're generating new types of knowledge. You kind of talked about how um, how like, you know, some of the research that you're doing and others are doing is new to the field. Like we're still growing in that way. And I, I feel like in in order to like ask new and interesting questions that really speak to like, you know, really important implications that we've talked about today, we have to, you know, be a little bit more diverse in terms of who's asking the questions. So when thinking about that, like um, your thoughts on like the level of like diversity in like the field of linguistics and uh, what would be your pitch uh, for students of color thinking about the field? Yeah, linguistics is not great, let me tell you. <laughs> uh, I got my PhD at NYU. I was the third black student that they had ever wow. had. And they have, you know, 40 to 50 students at a time. And this was 2016. Um, some of the places that I interviewed for PhD programs, I would have been their first black student. And they've had programs for 30 Jeez. years or something like that. So it's rough out here. Um, I think part of the issue, and I, you know, I teach undergraduates primarily, um, and part of the issue that we have with recruiting students of color is exactly kind of what I said to you in the beginning. People don't know that linguistics is a thing that you can do. Like we have a PR problem to start with, but also this is also a thing like people that are first gen, um, or people, especially with immigrant parents, sometimes experience a lot of pressure to choose a major that seems like it's going to be immediately applicable to something. So this is why we have more representation of black students in STEM, um, in general, but linguistics really is useful for a lot of things. So, you know, if you want to go to law school, how many people are applying to that law school that are majoring in English and poli-sci? How many are majoring in linguistics, yeah. right? So if you're doing something different, I mean, that can help you in that first place. But also when we talk about the law, isn't it really often a question of language? What does the statute mean, right? It's automatically beneficial for you. Um, so I think, I mean, there's that a lot of my students now that are graduating are getting really good jobs. Um, if they have any computational skills, Siri, um, Alexa, all of these voice recognition things need linguists. So if you have any programming skills and you know things about language, Amazon will hire you for six figures with a bachelor's degree. Um, you know, there are lots and lots of really practical things that you can do with linguistics. I think we just need to make it, um, we need to tell people that it's a thing that they can do, but also 
we need to have more people of color. You know, it's a vicious cycle. Like if students don't see any people of color doing it, they don't think that it's something that they can do. Um, and then we get in this cycle, kind of what you were saying um, about, you know, we're not asking interesting questions because not only is the lack of diversity in the field a problem because it's unfair, it's a problem because it's bad for our science. Um, and so I'm always, you know, when I'm bringing students into the classroom, like I'm out basically shouting in the streets of Claremont about everybody needs to take linguistics. <laughs> I show up at the office of black student affairs. I show up at Chicano and Latino studies. I'm like, Hey guys, everybody sign up for linguistics. Um, and some of it is actually just outreach, you know, people never did that before. They were like, Oh, we didn't even know that was a department. Like it took me 10 minutes to walk across the street. This is not a big deal. Um, but I think that sometimes people just don't think about the kind of work that you need to put in. If you really are committed to opening the field, to have diverse voices and to give opportunities to all students. Mm -hmm. And that's an excellent point. Um, and I think that's a, for all you listeners out there who are, or all you, all you undeclared majors out there as well, <laughs> I think you should pay attention to that um, because it's, it's needed. It's needed in a lot of ways. And I think moving forward, I think I'm fascinated with this field of sociolinguistics and linguistics in general and what you do. And um, again, we just appreciate you taking out the time. But before we leave, can you, um, where can people find you? You know, do you have a Twitter handle, yeah, Facebook, I'm Instagram, website? <laughs> what is it? All that <laughs> yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, I am on Twitter at, I'm at mixed linguist. <laughs> it's a joke because uh, I do different kinds of linguistics and I'm also black and multiracial. Um, so yeah, at mixed linguist, um, my website is just my name, Nicole holiday, holiday with two L's.com. You can come find my research. If you are listening and you are considering majoring in linguistics, considering going to grad school in linguistics, uh, get at me. Like I'm evangelical about this stuff. So I'm happy to, you know, talk to y'all, um, about, you know, wax poetic about linguistics all day long. <laughs> well, thank you so much. This was really awesome and really interesting. Thank you so much. Yeah. I learned a lot uh, to say the least. Oh, I'm glad it's so, it's so nice to talk to you guys. And like I said, like we have a PR problem. So anytime somebody wants to hear about what we do, I'm, I'm happy to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> and anybody that's, again, wants to continue this conversation, wants to get in contact with Nicole, we'll put up her information, her Twitter handle and, and website, um, all the, her links on the website as well. Um, a couple of the link, uh, links and articles she shared with us, we can share with you all and whatever information, just let us know. And if there's other questions and stuff, definitely hit us up on Instagram, Twitter as well. We'll try to do our best to answer those questions um, some more. Uh, but other than that, we'd like to thank you all for listening. We'd like to thank Nicole once again for coming and joining us. And uh, we'll, be in talk we'll be in touch with you all soon. Thank you. Thanks. Yo, 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 what it do, Dev? <laughs> you know, that, that, you know, I really appreciate Nicole. I appreciate it. Thank you, girl, for for validating me, <laughs> making me feel like where I come from and the way I speak is also important. That's Thank very you. very acceptable. That was a really good, that was a really good conversation. She has encouraged me to speak in my more relaxed and natural intonation. <laughs> on this podcast. Although, as you say, that, that is a privilege that you have as an assistant professor with a PhD. Um, we have, I think, I kind of think as people with a certain level of, at this point, class privilege or educational privilege, 
I think what kind of one thing that I got from that conversation is that we have to do our part with ensuring that like our our colleagues or our friends or, you know, whoever it may be, you know, maybe we have to do a little check in here or there when we see, you know, people mocking certain types of linguistic patterns or certain vernaculars or dialects like, you know, mm-hmm. we have to do something with that. privilege. Yeah, and I think I think there is uh, I feel like there's more responsibility on those of us who do have the opportunity to infiltrate these privileged spaces. And I think we should, you know, even though we do have a privilege to uh, to, to speaking more natural um I think that we should also do it more because it will shed light on or, or challenge these preconceived notions of people who may not be comfortable around that. Right. And so yeah. we are in these spaces and we just talk how we feel like talking. Um, it doesn't take away any of our credibility. And I think it'll get them to start realizing. So if they see a black man in the street speaking in a similar fashion than I do that they won't just assume right this person is um, uneducated because they actually work with somebody who's educated and speaks in the same fashion Uh, but if we continue to Mm -hmm. perform to the expectations that they want us to then they'll never know any variation amongst our own groups right Um, so Mm -hmm. I think yeah I think Mm -hmm. we hold some responsibility in that and kind of it's it'll just feel good kind of like she mentioned that there is labor that is associated with having to perform in ways that, you know, you can do it, but maybe it is not your most authentic self. And it's just kind of like, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm tired of doing that extra emotional labor. And, you know, yeah, it, it will like maybe move toward like normalizing, um, certain, certain types of speech patterns. And I'll say another thing that I really appreciate her saying is kind of like this American like exceptionalism thing to where like we only we appreciate being one dimensional in certain ways. Like, you know, I speak American or oh, (laughs) actually, you know what? You know what? Tisk tisk. Did you see me just mock? I saw you. you I saw it. Did you just not learn anything (laughs) from this interview, (laughs) Dad? myself out y'all I'm gonna call myself out on that we gotta do better it's not gonna happen overnight I think that's what you just showed us it's not gonna happen clearly clearly it's not gonna happen (laughs) but the point of that is you know I I liked her comments about um how you know in other cultures it's normal to have more than one language or more than one dialect Mm -hmm. and I think you know hopefully we can move toward that as uh American America becomes more diverse yeah we got to get past this notion that white is right all the time and that's the only way of of trying to the, the the biggest standard right the the measuring stick we all are trying to reach um no america is a diverse nation and we shouldn't always be held to this one single standard uh, so i definitely agree with you on that what i think i also appreciate her talking oh. about in her uh in the interview um one uh, i think you know nicole was saying that they have a pr problem if you if you listen to nicole i want to let you know that you are a great pr person uh for linguistics um so yeah <laughs> you should continue that path i mean just her examples are relevant you know um even when she dropped you know the jay-z kanye lyrics you know what i'm saying like come on now like 
who don't love Jay and Kanye? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I would definitely, like any listeners, if you have not declared a major or gotten your graduate degree, you better go get that money. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm like rethinking my own, yeah. you know, career. Pe- like, I could be making six figures at Google right now. Like, seriously? Or Facebook? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. definitely follow Nicole. You know what I'm saying? Life. She gave us that info. Follow her on, on Twitter and stuff like that. Reach out if this sounds like a path you're looking to go to. Oh, no, I was going to talk about another thing that I liked was also kind of the implications of, of the type of research that she's conducting and attempting to conduct in the future. Um, really, you know, because, you know, my expertise is in criminology, criminal justice. And I think this can re- make a real impact when we talk about communication, um, not just, you know, more generally, but these are things that can be learned and used in police trainings, right? If you can highlight the differences of tone and train police officers in that. So when you see a situation like she mentioned Sandra Bland, uh, now that they have, now that they are trained in that regard, um, they can't use certain things as an excuse, such as when feeling threatened and perceptions of perceived threat or whatever it is, uh, because now they have been laying, uh, trained on these kind of linguistics, the language, different things on tone. Um, and I think that's just an important thing to know, especially if you're going to be in a field where you're interacting with a diverse group of people, a diverse range of people. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was actually really interested uh, when she said she was teaching a class on linguistic discrimination. I was like, wow, that sounds really interesting. Like, I don't know, I might just look up some classes and, and take them. But I, I definitely think that it could be incorporated, you know, for those who may not be in linguistics. But I, I know a lot of people who do like um, professional development related to like other types of discrimination and it it might be just interested at least you know for some of my colleagues or friends to like add like linguistic discrimination to Mm. their um discussion of other forms of discrimination that might happen like in a workplace or in a classroom or etc so yeah i think that's important because i don't think we really address that at all really when we talk about forms of discrimination um and i think that being more conscious of that. Right. And I think for me, the biggest thing is how we do attribute certain dialects to intellect and intelligence. Um, And uh, that's something I think we all have to work on to making sure we're not doing. But like she said, language is so embedded in our way of thinking, in our learning, in our society and in our culture that it's 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 a tough thing to change, you know? I, I agree. And like I said, like even me, we all got work to do, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> even woke people, even, even woke folk. Um, but I like how she talked about when she worked in Inside Out and she addressed it with her students, um, you know, the differences of being yeah. uh, from a privileged situation. Because again, again, being a college student, you were privileged to be like, oh, no, all types of speech is, is beautiful and wonderful. Uh, but the way they have to survive, right? Those inmates who eventually will be let out and trying to navigate this world is that they feel, and more than likely than not, they're going to have to code switch and Mm -hmm. um, recognizing, getting her students to recognize their own privilege, right? In that, uh, and I think that will go far for when they work or educate in different settings as well. I think they'll always be reminded of that, like, hold on, where is this person coming from? What is their perspective? Because maybe uh, I'm only looking at it from through my lens, but I also have to listen or look through their lens as well, which I think is invaluable for sure. 
Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, with that, with that being said, that was a really good conversation. Gave me a lot to think about. Hopefully it gave a lot, uh, gave the listeners a lot to think about. And yeah. So as always, um, reach out to us. If there's things that stood out to you, you want questions, you want us to explore more, um, you know, Nicole is available and I'm pretty sure she has a lot of linguistic buddies we can tap to if we have other questions. Um, so, yeah, just reach out to us. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, on our websites, et cetera, email. You guys know the drill um, and definitely we'll be we'll be looking out for you all. All right. Till next right. time. Continue to be the oppressors. Worst fear. Nah, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> If you're interested in continuing this and other conversations, visit our website, blackandhollydangerous.com to subscribe to our email list, suggest topics, and participate in our discussion forums. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at BHD Podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast on your favorite platform. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear.